Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And on this show, we, with our guests, we'll discuss relevant health-related topics, and we'll do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today, we have a new guest to Dr. Doctor, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. His name is Dr. Larry Mitnall. Larry is a child psychiatrist in Wichita who I met at Focus on the Family. He's a member of their Physician Resource Council, and he's a child psychiatrist who's going to help us to better understand anxiety in kids. You know, it's amazing that this is even a topic, isn't it? When I first started preparing for this episode, you think, what what could there be that would make children suffer from anxiety? Trying to decide <laughs> what what sport to play, to decide which house in the cul-de-sac to visit for lunch today. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a shame in many ways that this specialty even exists. And yet it does, doesn't it? Uh, oh, pediatric psychiatry is busy. It's I've learned it's hard to find one, especially a good one. Somebody who, you know, views the world the way we do as Catholics. Not easy. That's not easy in a lot of specialties, but particularly in counseling and psychiatric care, very, very difficult. And anxiety is the most common mental health problem in adults, you know, about 20% of adults. Uh, and in children, it can be up to 30% by the time kids hit adolescence. So even at age five, one in seven children meets criteria for anxiety. It's incredible. You know, one of the things I look forward to asking our guest is this pediatric anxiety, an example of affluenza. Is this, is this a first world problem? Have we moved beyond worrying about food on the table so that now we can worry about other non- life-threatening things. I think that's a way oversimplification, uh, but it will be interesting to hear him address that, I think. And we've done several episodes. If our listeners haven't heard Dr. Kevin Majors, a Harvard psychiatrist, uh, talk about anxiety, they've been very enlightening. And one of the things he pointed out is that everyone experiences anxiety. We can't control the fact that it happens, but we can control what we do for it and, or do with it. And the problem typically comes from Engaging it with worry, dread, or rumination, that's where the suffering comes from. And I had a chance to talk to Larry back in October about this. We went for a nice walk around Focus on the Family's campus on a beautiful day. And he's got some wonderful ways of looking at things that were very fresh, even for me. Well, you know, this idea that anxiety is an emotion that we can't necessarily control, but we can control, as we'll learn, maybe what our response to that emotion is. Like in Monsters Incorporated, Chris? Yes, very. It's a very the same thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> my, one of one my of favorite, favorite movies. One of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah, that's the the point of that is that, you know, we've all been afraid of monsters under the bed or monsters in the closet, especially, or um, you know, my eleven-year-old won't go to the basement because it's dark. That's not what we're talking about <laughs> when we talk about uh, pediatric and and adolescent anxiety. Yes. So we also will explore how has the pandemic affected anxiety in children? I can't imagine that's been a good thing. Yeah. I mean, of course, as we said, worries and fears are natural. We're not talking about that. And certainly the pandemic has brought on a new layer of complexity to all of the of the normal and complex human emotions. But we're talking about the case when anxiety and fear become persistent and excessive causing notable distress or impairment in day-to-day -day life, not just usual or typical fears. These are limiting the child or the young adult's ability to function uh, as they ordinarily would function. And the disorders are most common. They, they are the most common of the adult psychiatric disorders that begin in childhood. So of the adult psychiatric problems, some of them begin in childhood. Childhood anxiety is the most common of those uh, which begin in, in young children. Um, and they're associated with, not surprisingly, underachievement in school, with co-occurring and other psychiatric problems, with functional impairment uh, that can extend well into adulthood. But probably, I think, most important and most tragic for us to remember is that these disorders have the ability to steal the very essence and the beauty of childhood from a child. Uh, so stop and think about that for a moment. And now suddenly it seems much more important than monsters under the bed, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, 
I have seen kids who suffer from this and your heart just goes out to them because the problems are, it's a problem of thinking, uh, of an unhealthy way of thinking. And thankfully, Larry has some practical tips to give about how parents can help their children to get out of that type of straitjacket way of looking at the world. Now, if our listeners, Tom, know anything, they know that we in medicine love language. Uh, and so we like to keep things neatly organized. So the DSM-5, which is really the diagnosis manual that helps mental health professionals make diagnoses, it includes seven anxiety disorders in children, and they are as follows. Number one is generalized anxiety disorder. We often call that GAD. The other is social anxiety disorder. Number three is panic disorder. Four is agoraphobia. That sounds like it should be in the trivia question sometime. <laughs> Number five is specific phobias. I'm afraid of cats. I'm afraid of ladders. Uh, separation, anxiety disorder. And lastly, selective mutism. Wow, where you just don't talk because you get so fearful. So anxious. And I think we're going to hear from our guest. Um, in the development of these disorders, it's really not well understood and that they can be determined by a complex set of interactions, like so many things between biological factors, psychological factors, and uh, laid on top of that, social and environmental factors. And of interest to our listeners, I'm also sure, is that parenting styles appear to be a critical environmental component uh, to anxiety disorders. I can't wait to learn how to be better parents, especially for our kids with anxiety. So with that as a backdrop, Tom, let's move forward with what I know our listeners are waiting to hear, this episode's medical trivia question of the day. And here we go. We're going to go to a 2011 book called How Plater, Plater, Plato, How Plato and Pythagoras Can Save Your Life by a psychologist, Dr. Nicholas Carderis, where he explains the benefits of treating depression and anxiety with an ancient Greek approach. What's new is old, what's old is new. And he calls it the Pythagorean way of life. Don't worry, I'm not going to quiz you about the Pythagorean theorem. That's that whole a squared plus b squared equals c squared thing. No, no, no math question. So the successful Pythagorean approach to reducing depression and anxiety included four components. Included number one, a vegetarian diet. Number two, vigorous physical exercise. And then the trivia question deals with the other two of the four parts of the old Greek way of treating anxiety and depression. It included one, philosophical discussions. But what was the topic of the philosophical discussions? And number two, living life in a specific way. And what was that way? So we'll find out about the philosophical topic and the way to live life, including, uh, according to the Greeks, that would help anxiety after the interview with Dr. Larry Mittenall, but hang on, we have Dr. Larry coming up here after the break on Dr. Doctor, coming to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome to our special guest interview today with Dr. Larry Mittenall. He's gonna talk about anxiety in kids, and Larry was raised in a military family, traveled a lot, got a bachelor's in biology at University of Dallas, managed a pediatric oncology research lab, then got a master's in biomedical science policy and advocacy, then he managed a diabetes lab. Then he went to the University of Texas Health Science Center where he got both a medical degree and a master's of public health degree. Sounds like the, um, the uh, forever student here. Uh, then he did an adult psychiatry residency, followed by child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Dartmouth, way up in the the upper right-hand corner of the country in um, New Hampshire. He's board certified in psychiatry as well as child and adolescent psychiatry. He now lives, of course, in Wichita, Kansas. Who would have who'd thought? He has a wife and five children, devotes time to advocacy, teaching, public speaking, and percussion instruments. And he's most readily found these days on his YouTube channel, Larry Mittenall. Welcome to Dr. Doctor. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Well, Larry, thanks once again for coming on as a guest and making Tom and I feel professionally inadequate um, <laughs> and under and underachieved, <laughs> if there is such a thing. But, but thank you very much for coming on. So we were talking a little before uh, you joined us uh, about pediatrics and trying to decide what would a child ever have to be 
anxious about. But I think a lot of times we think about pediatrics as just little people medicine, uh, little people, little doses of the same medicines that big people need. Um, so what are some of the fundamental differences in the approach to children versus adults as patients? Sure. I think um, there are a couple things that stand out to me that make the practice of child psychiatry uh, just a little bit different in seeing uh, these young ones. Um, probably one of the most notable is uh, the number of informants it takes to help come up with, uh, with a plan and to figure out what's going on with kids. I think, you know, all of medicine, uh, you know, requires some degree of kind of detective work and, and following the clues and often expend, extends beyond kind of the primary story that, you know, that the patient can give. And so I think, you know, while uh, a lot of my you know, colleagues have you know, maybe blood work and physical signs and imaging to use, which I do use um, at times, I mean, kids too, it's, it's a little bit different in that, you know, I'm encountering the child, but then also um, working a lot with the family, often getting, you know, maybe some additional testing or, or hearing from the school too. And so often I get to hear the voice of um, a child and the child's kind of community together, um, letting me know what it is that they're, that they're seeing. Um, you know, also in, in seeing kids, uh, you know, all of those, you know, early thinkers that uh, people, you know, mention here and there, like Piaget and Erickson and Mahler. I mean, we actually, we, we use those uh, developmental frames a lot. And so, um, and so there's, on one level, we're looking for kind of a diagnostic, you know, checklist, but um, we're also trying to, you know, use a framework of thinking, what is this child's developmental level? What can we actually expect them to experience what are some of the emotions that, or their coping strategies that are just a part of, you know, who they are right now at this age um, versus um, some real pathology that can cause them some issues or, or trouble uh, down the line. Um, so, so Larry, yeah. we're, as we, as we record this episode, we're seeing um, the COVID virus numbers really make uh, make a tough comeback, and none of the trends are looking good. What mental health problems in children have you seen affected by the pandemic? Sure. I think, you know, certainly the length of social isolation, um, I think the, the literature that's still kind of growing and that we're looking at um, is, a, is still probably one of our strongest predictors of, um, of some of the future mental illness uh, things that kids might be suffering with. And so, um, and so that really plays a, a large role. As I was talking about, you know, part of assessing a child is knowing how they're doing in their community. And so when they lack that community, they really lack a lot of the, the resources and some of the sustaining, you know, um, uh, pillars that really help them to be as successful as they can be. And so it's probably no surprise that, um, that we see and certainly I've been seeing an uptick of, of kids in my practice who are struggling with, you know, uh, loneliness and feeling of isolation and disconnection and, um, and, and a little more anxiety um, than they typically would. Now, we certainly see that in adults. Do you think the isolation uh, and the lockdown sort of mentality of the pandemic, do you think children are uniquely at risk for that? Or do you think it's equal compared to adults? You know, I think um, it's been interesting to see. I think the, the most recent kind of meta-analysis I looked at, um, actually kids might have been doing a little bit better than, uh, than parents um, when it comes to um, being able to, you know, be victorious over the anxiety and some of the stressful, you know, situations that they're facing. However, parental stress for a child who's been affected by COVID or been hospitalized by COVID mm -hmm. is actually quite a bit greater, both on the dimensions of, of depression and anxiety for their kids who are struggling. And so, um, and, and why that's important is, you know, um, kids who, um, who struggle with anxiety, it's not uncommon that, you know, genetically their forebears have had some degree of anxiety too that they've struggled with. And so if a parent is struggling, often that is a vulnerability for the child as well. And so I think that's having an impact as well, even if kind of indirectly, um, it, it certainly is on their environment. Larry, what's a useful practical definition of anxiety for our listeners to use? Sure. I think, you know, the definition I like is um, anxiety is our internal warning system uh, that's, the, that's aimed at or its goal is to detect and avoid danger or pain. I think those are kind of the, the two big constructs. Um, you know, we use a diagnostic and statistical, you know, manual. We're currently on our fifth edition. 
that was released in 2013, it kind of separates out fear and anxiety. So it kind of puts fear in the box of kind of a, an emotional response um, to, to some type of imminent threat. So you can imagine like, you know, being face to face with the saber tooth tiger. Okay, that that's a that's a fear response. There's a very clear thing um, that we can kind of see ahead of a child. And it kind of parses out anxiety as kind of anticipation of a future threat. So maybe something that actually isn't happening in the here and now, but they're thinking about that test. They're thinking about uh, the challenge. Ahead. And everybody has anxiety. This is normal, part of being a yes, human being. It is, it is. It's part of the human experience and, and how, we're, how we're wired, really. So how does it become a problem? Okay, so that's a really good question. So, you know, I think there are uh, a couple things to consider. One is that I think we're all come into the world um, built with just different temperament uh, styles. And so I actually recently wrote an article for, um, for folks on the family that, that talks about just different wiring and, and temperament that we come into the world, um, that we come into the world with. And I think there are some kids who just, you know, their expectation uh, or appreciation of what could be dangerous or what could happen around the corner is just a little bit higher than than uh, than the average, and so that actually that individual you know thought or anticipation that something anxious could be around the corner of itself isn't necessarily a negative, um, but really it's it's the reaction to you know to how one responds to it, um, and it can be reinforced by how one's you know environment kind of responds to. Uh, response to a to a stress. So um, I think in the article I, I used the example of uh, Winnie the Pooh because I think most people, <laughs> young and old, have probably you know seen that before. And so Piglet really is the archetype of you know kind of the bundle of anxiety. And so yes. um, with kids in the office, sometimes I'll draw an example of you know uh, you can imagine Piglet being in his bed, waking up early, and it's still dark outside, and he's so anxious that you know he his mind thinks there could be something dangerous lurking in the room. And so what might he do? He might pull out his flashlight. He might, you know, turn the, the lamp on and off. He might call out, who are you there? You know, he might do, you know, 10,000 different gyrations to finally feel confident enough to stand up in the morning. And so your brain can draw a couple of conclusions from that. So one conclusion is I've done these, you know, 10,000 things and that's made my environment safe or actually, this is one more day where I've gotten up in the morning and there's nothing to be anxious about, okay? So, so the difference, you know, how someone takes those experiences, lumps them together and forms a conclusion for it, I think helps set them up to either, you know, continue to experience that, that worry in the pit of their stomach versus feeling like, actually, the data is, you know, I've awoken, you know, 2,374 mornings and everything has been absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Larry, give our listeners, um, you know, a real world example of maybe a, a pre-adolescent child with anxiety out beyond Piglet. What does that actually yeah. look like uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in an actual child? What does that actually look like? Sure. So, um, so imagine, if you would, uh, you know, an eight-year-old who um, every time uh, they're getting ready for school, just before the family's uh, about to leave um, for the day, maybe they have their lunchbox, they have their backpack, um, but suddenly there there's always seems to be a tummy ache or some rumblings there, or maybe a little bit of um, headache. And so the length of time it should take, you know, the 10 paces from, you know, the mudroom or from the kitchen to the car um, instead becomes, you know, maybe a 15 or 20 minute ordeal where there's, you know, maybe some bribery, coercion, tickling, I don't know, but to, to, to get them, uh, to get them there. And so, um, and, uh, or, or, you know, uh, uh, you can imagine kind of a kid who just, maybe they're, maybe the same eight-year-old who's also having trouble initiating his day um, and getting in the van might also, you know, occasionally ask parents about, about the finances of the of the home, even though the child has experienced, you know, no periods of, of mm -hmm. material lack significantly or poverty or prolonged, you know, absence of the things that they they really uh, need. And so again, the child might be saying things like, you know, well, my 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 stomach hurts all the time, or or just asking for a lot of you know reassurances. Is everything okay? Um, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to getting a you know a job <laughs> next next weekend. Um, so those are the, that might be, you know, so uh, the tone of a young kid who might be struggling with anxiety. And, and how does anxiety look different at different ages from preschool on to older adolescence? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, 
it, it, it depends. So when we talk about anxiety, um, usually it's kind of an umbrella term that refers to a lot of different flavors of anxiety. But um, for teenagers, you know, as you get older and they get a little bit more self-reflective, um, it tends to be more outward. So you might see a little bit more kind of social anxiety, performance-related anxiety um, in an older kid, whereas in younger kids, um, you might see a little bit more separation anxiety. So, you know, you're going somewhere and they have difficulty, you know, separating. Maybe, maybe going to school is part of the separation anxiety. Maybe being in the grocery store and parent asks them to grab a box of cereal and come back to the aisle. So that level, they, they could be really overwrought with emotion around that, but you don't expect to see that um, perhaps in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a teenager. The anxious teenager might say, you know, mom or dad, I feel really anxious. Um, and, um, or, or might not even use the term anxious, might talk about some physical somatic symptoms and you might see them shadowing. That's the term we'll sometimes use where, you know, maybe they're, they're covered in a blanket and your usually gregarious, independent child seems to be huddled next to you everywhere you go. You're trying to work in the office. They want to Zoom, do their Zoom classes in your office. You move to the kitchen. They suddenly get hungry for a snack, too. Um, and, and you're wondering, what's going on here? Why are we having different, you know, difficulty uh, separating? So that, that might be some of the differences. You know? huh. And since we're a Catholic show, something yes. that, I don't know if it's uniquely Catholic, but does the concept of scrupulosity fit in here? It certainly does. I think um, that's one of the features that I probably see more in, in religious families when it comes to especially obsessive and compulsive uh, types of anxiety, where someone ruminates and, and just can't be free of thinking, overthinking you know, a, a, a situation or a scenario. And so sometimes I'll see kids who are struggling with just, you know, sin. Maybe they have um, committed an, an act and they've, they've availed themselves of the sacrament of confession, but they just can't seem to feel, you know, the, the peace um, and the grace from the, from the sacrament. And so they might still continue to ruminate, perseverate on it. Um, and, um, and, and often with the help of their priest and, and, and maybe a professional, you know, helping them to gain some reassurance that, nope, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was done, you know, validly and, and you're free to kind of move on, but they might be tied in um, in, a, in an unhelpful way to a preoccupation with, you know, what have I done wrong or feeling stained or feeling like they have to continually, you know, repeat and act over and over. How does puberty affect anxiety? Is this an extra added uh, stressor that adults don't have to worry about who have yeah, anxiety? Is, is this gas on the fire? That's yes. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Essentially, you know, for, and, and for each child, it can be, you know, it, it can certainly be different. Um, so I, I don't want parents or, um, or other professionals who, just because they've seen some social anxiety or separation anxiety, expecting that things will necessarily get worse. However, however, um, you know, puberty does tend to, um, enhance certain features and can for a lot of people who struggle with anxiety enhance some of the features of their anxiety and so uh, and sometimes actually that might be the um, the onset of symptoms is around 13 14 um, years old so for instance you know we we tend to see the social anxiety piece um, is is actually the the median age of onset is about 13 years old so 75 percent of kids it's you know between the ages of eight and 15 so um, so we we know that um, once you activate the HPA axis and the cortisol is, is, is going up a little bit and <laughs> in, in driving things, um, that these kids do tend to, to struggle a little bit, uh, a little bit more. And so, um, and so, you know, parents may say, well, maybe they've had a little bit of anxiety, but it's never really been this functionally impairing. It hasn't mm -hmm. made their world smaller. It hasn't stopped them from pursuing things that they're interested in from, you know, performances from social relationships. Um, and so that might be a, a sign that uh, maybe this was percolating all along, um, but development has kind of pushed things um, to a more, uh, to a stronger presentation. Larry, the last thing we'd want to do is for our listeners to maybe blame themselves if they have a child <laughs> suffering with anxiety. But we yeah. talked a little bit at the beginning that parental styles and maybe family cultural styles yeah could play a role in someone who's maybe prone to anxiety. Help our listeners understand what that might look like and what, what might be done about that. 
Sure. So in younger kids, um, you know, what a common theme and uh, that I might see is, you know, a parent who is, uh, I think, well-intentioned in attempting to um, allay a child's fears, you know, um, and, and trying to, um, and trying to comfort, but they might do it in such a way that they actually remove the child ever having to face the anxiety. So, you know, rather than thinking about, okay, every time, you know, you have to go to the basement, maybe we never let Johnny do it. We always delegate it to, you know, big sister, big brother. Um, and, and so he never gets the opportunity to kind of grow through the challenge. Now, you know, maybe there are things that we do. Another way to, uh, for a parent to attack it might be, okay, maybe we put up some extra lights. Maybe we go down accompanied a couple of times until they've built up the confidence to be able to do so independently. So one is, you know, I think as parents are noticing, uh, noticing maybe some differences, noticing um, that, that their child might be struggling in some way, you know, looking for ways to support them while also challenging um, together, which can be a, a, a fine, you know, balance to, to thread. And so um, in that regard, it can be helpful to have, you know, a therapist or some uh, book resources too that help them to kind of uh, suss that out. The other thing too is that you know if if a parent also knows that they are struggling with anxiety, um, actually it may not be uh, one of the one of the better interventions too may be if they get some help around learning how to cope um, better and model that for their kids, they may in turn become the best coach actually for right. their for their younger kid. And so um, and so there are there are children um, who have seen me and actually have left my office without a recommendation for, you know, necessarily individual therapy for the child or for a medication, but the family is going to do some work um, together and, uh, and see if, if that in turn helps them to move the dial and to improve. Larry, what are some triggers that should say to a parent, I need to help address my child's problem with anxiety? Sure. Um, I think probably the, the biggest ones for me are, um, when they notice uh, their child's world becoming smaller. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the interests that the child really enjoys and thrives um, in doing, they're no longer able to participate. So for instance, say, you know, um, I'm going to pick the most socially available distance sport that a kid could be in right now, which is probably fencing, right? It's both masked and <laughs> if someone gets within six feet, you get to stab them. <laughs> Right. So, so say a child is engaged in, you know, in, in, in fencing, but, um, but they, every time they, you know, it's time to go to fencing practice, they come up with a million excuses and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you know, your child. So you kind of run the gauntlet of it's not this, it's not that it's not something medical. It's not, you know, um, it's not uh, something else that can easily kind of explain this, then that's probably uh, anxiety. And so, and so I think when, when parents see meaningful things in their child's life fall away, so again, avoidance of, um, you know, family time and social interaction, avoidance of, um, you know, uh, meal times together, avoidance of attending school if, if in school is an option, um, avoidance of mass, avoidance of, you know, um, these things. I think what, when you see that it feel, it, when it starts to feel like the child's world is smaller and smaller and smaller, um, due to some of the struggles that they're having, then um, those are the times to seek help. Well, Larry, with that, I think we'll take a break. Uh, I can't wait to hear a lot of the other topics that we're going to cover. We'll be back uh, after the break with our special guest on childhood and adolescent psychiatry right here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Uh, so Larry, uh, just after the break here, what are, what are some of the ways that children try to cope with anxiety, even if no adult has taught them how to do it? And maybe they're trying to do it under the radar so their parents won't notice. Sure. I think, you know, younger kids are perhaps a little less stealthy with being able to hide <laughs> the anxiety that they're, that they're feeling. And so the good news is um, younger kids who tend to struggle with it 
um, you, uh, you'll see the, you might see crying or tantrums. Um, some kids you'll just see get frozen, you know, frozen in their, in their place with, um, with fear. Um, and the, the other thing too, that's, that's really, really common with young kids is clinginess. So just the inability to kind of, you know, separate and wanting to be around you. And again, you know, that would be in excess of the normal snuggles, cuddles, you know, that a family might, might typically do. Um, I think as you move a little bit older, um, that in terms of the fight or flight response kind of gone awry. So one might be in terms of the, the flight side. So seeing kids be really uh, avoidant of, of activities that either they previously enjoyed or just an inability to kind of strike out and try new things. Um, the other is um, rather than the tantrums and crying, you might notice um, just kind of a, an argumentativeness or or or, um, or a bite or kind of a you know caustic you know um, attitude that kind of keeps you at at bay a little bit um, that might cause you to ask what else is going on for them and and how why are they struggling and where is this coming from the other thing too for both um, young and old kids too you might see them engage in ritual and not the healthy kind of ritual that we like to you know, have families established like, you know, meal times and prayer times and things like that. But, um, but where you find that things are ordered to, towards um, actually making people more bound than making them more free. And so that's the, you know, the bedtime ritual that began with, you know, one kiss on each cheek, which is now 14 kisses on each cheek with <laughs> two teddy bears and a and a Eskimo kiss, you know. Um, so, uh, so looking for the the rituals that uh, that really, you know, don't really serve the purpose of bringing, you know, kind of the family closer together, and instead seem like a delay or hesitation from um, and, moving on. And where does social media play into bad coping mechanisms? Yeah, that's a really um, that's a really great uh, question. You know, and unfortunately, I think the the onset of you know device use and and it seems to be trending kind of earlier and earlier. And so um, in terms of talking about avoidance, I can't think of a better avoidance from dealing with a real world practical, you know, stressor than to pull out the digital library you have in your pocket that's connected to all kinds of really wonderful content that allows you to escape, but not um, kind of feel or sense or face down uh, maybe some of the anxiety or, or, or discomfort that someone is um, is feeling. And so um, I think uh, uh, to use that analogy um, that I mentioned before about uh, a child's world becoming smaller. Um, so often it becomes so small that you can almost picture a child hunched over their device curled into um, a ball because that's where all of their, their time, their energy, their kind of resource is going to. So often that is one of the things that we're talking about, whatever the treatment plan is and helping a child to feel more free is to untether them from uh, from media consumption, passive media consumption all the time. What kind of professional should parents seek when what they're doing at home doesn't seem to be enough? What tips can you give for a Catholic parent to find a, a Catholic friendly counselor or psychiatrist? Sure. I think the, the first is, um, um, is word of mouth, obviously, you know, between um, uh, the physician, especially if they know them and also kind of share their, their values. Um, and, uh, and so you might have friends or colleagues also that know of, of great um, kind of Catholic providers or Christian providers who have, who have that same um, ethic. I think there can be some helpful questions in the kind of interviewing process too when connecting your child to, to therapy. So one is recognizing or asking the question, what is the format of, of, of the therapy or the appointments um, uh, like? So will the child be there um, doing an hour a week, you know, for eight to 12 session without any parental input? Will the parent be, a, you know, a part or apprised of what's going on um, during the, you know, during the appointments where there'll be time set aside? And I'm not saying that the parent has to be there, you know, um, for each, you know, full hour of, of time. But I think all ultimately, um, in terms of helping kids to feel more free, we also want to strengthen the the ties and kind of connection to, to family. And I think often the, you know, Catholic and faith-based um, practitioners see the preservation of the family and making sure that the work that they do um, integrates the family rather than separates them or tries to individu individuate them in, in an unhealthy way. So I think asking questions about, you know, what's the manner of, of the therapy? How, um, what's the typical 
um, layout and how much parental involvement um, is, is a part of the treatment planning. So if they say that they do cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, would these be good things, bad things, neutral things? Those are, those are really good things. Those are probably the most um, evidence-based kind of interventions that we have for, um, for kids. And the good thing is they, they really focus their problem-centered modalities for helping kids and helping adults even um, to, uh, to, to end their struggle with, um, with anxiety or to at least to, to reduce it. And I like, those, I, I like those types. And I think people who are really faithful to the model um, parents can generally be assured that, you know, that the work going on behind the closed door is, is going to be in service of helping their child with anxiety and not venture off the, the field to other things. And what's the role of medication in treating anxiety in kids? Sure. Um, so medication um, in kids, my um, philosophy, and I think the gold standard for child psychiatry is that um, really, we try to use it as a last resort, that the goal is if we can build that um, resilience and coping strategies, that that's kind of our primary way to get in and help kids to feel free. Um, I'll remind parents that, you know, really, there's no skill in a pill. And so that's the, <laughs> ultimately, we want them to have the skills that enable them to, to be successful in life. And so I think of the medication kind of like a, a cast. So if I find that that kids have been engaged in really good therapy, but for some reason, they're just not progressing. They're just not able to get over the hump, even though um, they've been doing really good work. Often medication tied to the therapeutic work actually can really lower the threshold. So maybe their anxiety was a 10. Now it's a seven. Well, seven's a functional um, level and gives the child a little bit more chance of having success at mastering, incorporating, and practicing the techniques that they're learning. So just like a cast comes off of a limb with a healed bone so the medicine can come off when they've learned those skills. That's absolutely right. So the, the medication um, is kind of holding things together while the body is, is healing itself um, over time. And, and that's one of the great things about treating anxiety disorders in kids is that um, we're not anticipating forever and ever, amen, especially when it comes to medication. The goal is to help them to, to get to um, a place of a functionality, and then we look for a window to be able to, to pull it back to allow them to thrive. You know, Larry, we've had guests from all sorts of specialties talking about all sorts of ailments that at the end of it all, it seemed like it pointed to food as poison. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and when it, when it comes to childhood and adolescent uh, anxiety, is there a role uh, for diet and nutrition um, that can play a role to make that better, worse, or is there no role for that? Yes. Um, I, I am someone who um, I think we have some good evidence to suggest that, you know, kids who are, are well nourished, that that's actually healthy for their bodies and young <laughs> developing brains. And so, um, and so actually, I will tell families that um, in terms of diet, I, I take uh, the food that you eat as the first medication that you're actually giving your, your child. So if we can get them eating in a more healthy way, helping them to live an overall kind of healthier lifestyle, and that doesn't mean you can't ever have you know, Cheetos, but, um, but it shouldn't be the, the primary, the primary, uh, it can't be a substitute for, um, for kind of a well-balanced, a well-balanced um, well uh, diet. So, um, so I think food is, is, is great. Um, I think hangry isn't in the DSM-5, but, but it is a real phenomenon. I've, I've witnessed it. <laughs> the, any of us with children have, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and that made me think of parents with children with anxiety often feel overwhelmed. What can they do to help with their own frustration, burnout, whatever they're experiencing? Because these kids are often quite taxing on them emotionally. They are, and, um, and, and so one is um, for parents not to blame themselves for feeling that way. So I come in, uh, I mean, parents see me with a lot of parental guilt for all the many things they wish they, <laughs> Had done um, already, and and so actually that's that's okay, you know. Um, in 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 psychiatry training, um, the reason you're given a, a mentor along the way too is that not only to kind of process your own feelings, but to allow you to recognize over time that your feelings are actually a cue. They that they're telling you something. So you don't have to be mired by the feeling, but the feeling is letting you know, hey, why am I feeling so exhausted? It's because likely there's a technique, there's something going on here that's recurring 
that's draining my tank and it's not helping my child to be successful. So I think one, if a parent can take stock of, you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed, um, how am I approaching it? Is there something that I can be doing differently? Am I getting wound up in, the, in an anxiety spiral? And so we're pushing each other you know, up in terms of levels of anxiety rather than either one of us being able to help each other bringing it down. So what can that mom or dad do in the moment when they're feeling that way and they recognize sure. it? So I, I, am a, I really like sensory things. So I think before um, a parent kind of goes with their, their gut or their first response, drink something with, you know, 10 ice cubes in it. I mean, do something that, that, that kind of shocks your, shocks your senses. Um, you know, I actually had a, a parent once who said they had calming water. And when I asked what that is, it really just, um, it, it really just had carbonation. So it didn't have to have flavors or anything, but just something sensory that helped them to, to kind of calm down before they found their response. And so um, I think sometimes we feel pressured to have the right answer in the moment for our right. child's meltdown or, or, um, or frustration. And, and sure. often, even if a, a licensed therapist was standing next to you, none of us might have the right you know, answer in the moment. So taking that time for yourself, giving yourself a little bit of um, peace and perhaps a moment of prayer, and then returning to the situation. But does can, that physical thing bring them into the present moment and out of their head? Yes. Yeah. So it's something to, what happens is I think it often kind of distracts from the thing that seems like the primary thing. So part of anxiety, um, the root of the anxiety often is, you know, for the child. So um, from the child's perspective, you know, I, I, I miss this homework problem. I am I'm getting a bad grade in this class. I'll never graduate. And then I'm going to be hopeless and poor and die. Right. I mean, that, <laughs> the end of the anxiety is always and then I'm dead at the end. And so and so often something that helps you be grounded back to reality, that's a different sensation, um, can be just <laughs> enough of a window to give you space, to give you space to to, to take a step, uh, take a step back, because if you're in that in that cycle with them, descending, you know, um, descending to the levels with Dante, you know, um, it can be really, it can be really hard to find that peace and to bring your child out of it. So I think uh, if a parent can find their peace first and finding maybe something sensory that gives them a, gives them a break or forces them to take a break, um, it, then re-engaging, um, they might find that, you know, half of the time what they return to is actually already started to simmer down or head in the right direction. And now we can start doing something productive. So diet, I assume, means, you know, low amounts of sugary foods, uh, yes. you know, uh, sugared pop, maybe even diet pop, you know, mm -hmm. fatty, a lot of fat. So but what's the role then for for exercise? Yes. Um, so exercise actually is really uh, is really important, and I think it's one of those um, understated things that kids can be engaging in that can that can help them. Um, and actually, it helps adults as well. I mean, I talk a lot about about kids. Um, I think the the studies have been pretty um, pretty strong that you know kids who are getting thirty to sixty minutes of moderate to vigorous cardiovascular activity, you know, in a, in a week, um, that that tends to help um, lower some of their autonomic you know, arousal responses to and help them to better kind of manage their anxiety. For, for adults, it's, I mean, at least the, the last studies that I looked at look, look to be a little bit higher. So closer to, you know, maybe 75 to 150 minutes, you know, um, two or three times a week um, can be really helpful for that too. Um, and, and that's especially important too, um, both because of social, social, social isolation and maybe the limits that kids may be getting uh, physical activity at school. Um, but then also, you know, for us uh, who, who have to contend with daylight savings and less time outside and, and you know, things getting colder too, um, that can be one of the things that we um, overlook. But exercise actually is, is really important and healthy um, kind of coping too for kids. Larry, do you see a difference between uh, male, female uh, in, in this response? Tom and I are both homeschoolers of both boys and girls. And one thing we learned early on in our homeschooling was sometimes you had to have the boys just go run. Um, <laughs> whereas, whereas the girls didn't always have to do that. So um, with that in mind, is, does anxiety, does it look differently? And does the response change by gender? 
Um, it, it does tend to in large groups. And, you know, I say that, and of course, there are going to be girls who respond to, you know, taking a good run or, you know, <laughs> playing tennis or whatever their stress reliever might, might be. But it does turn out that, uh, that we do see that boys getting engaged in some kinetic activity uh, tends to be really helpful. So much so that actually I have, um, I, I know that I have kids in my clinic who we've um, significantly delayed the onset of medication just because they were able to do um, a season of a sport, you know, um, that during the football season, during the basketball season, being uh, physically engaged, that that was, um, you know, that that was tremendously beneficial for their, for their mood and for their anxiety. For girls, actually, we tend to see, um, for most anxiety disorders, maybe a little bit higher level um, when you compare the, when you compare the, the sexes. And, um, and um, interestingly, in, uh, in a recent meta-analysis, it looked like um, in terms of social isolation, girls are maybe struggling a little bit more. And I think that also may, you know, I, I think, you know, we also tend to see girls at, at younger ages being more attuned to kind of the social awareness and, um, and, and that level of connection. Again, not that boys don't need strong, you know, emotional connections too. Um, but those are the, some of the ways that I often see it, it being a bit different between, um, you know, both the teenage girls and teenage boys that I see in my, in my practice that, um, that the girls might not need to run it off as much. They might need to talk it out, you know, with, with friends, with, you know, family, um, and have that type of connection to help them. Larry, in our last couple minutes here, what practical resources can you recommend for parents to use with their kids before they see a counselor or psychiatrist and what's like one pearl one thing that they could do if they see their children in the moment struggling with anxiety sure so um so maybe i'll, I'll start with the resources so there are some really um good workbooks um out there that um that i often recommend for for families um one is called a uh, coping cat and it's for uh, younger kids and it basically takes um cognitive behavioral therapy um and really kind of makes it um, very accessible for kids. The other thing is, I think it can also be helpful for families to do uh, some of the work modules um, together. And so, uh, and so I think often I've heard from families that the parent is benefiting from learning and teaching the skills or going through them um, with, their, with their young kids. So coping um, cat like a female, feline, four-legged yes. animal. Got That's it. right, yes, yes, coping cat. Um, the other is, um, there is a really great series um, called uh, by a, by a psychologist um, whose name is escaping me at the moment. the The titles are you know what to do when you dread your bed, you know what to do um, when you're overwhelmed by by worry. And there's a series of these that actually kind of uh, that really do a good job of both describing the emotion because I think kids often have a very limited you know emotional vocabulary to describe the feelings that they're feeling and then also giving them uh, things to work on and those workbooks are actually good for for kids of um, you know throughout throughout the spectrum um, and kind of age ranges and then in terms of a in terms of a, a pearl for for parents I think one is calling the feeling a name and actually this is something that I learned from that great philosopher, not quite psychiatrist, um, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I, there actually is a lot of uh, power in helping the kids, uh, helping kids to name feelings. And so, you know, in the examples that I gave you earlier about the tummy aches and, and headaches, you know, often kids use that because that's, that's what they're feeling. And it's the closest, the closest word, the closest descriptor they have for what it is that they're feeling. And so often, you know, helping them to, to develop the language and call it, you know, worry or anxiety and then normalizing it that everyone you know experiences it um, can actually help them to feel empowered to, to take it on. Larry this has been full of practical wisdom and advice thank you for being with us for your first trip to Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio and the Pythagorean sort of way Dr. Tom has the answer to the trivia question. The ancient Greeks used to treat anxiety with a fourfold method. Number one, a vegetarian diet. Number two, visit vigorous physical exercise. And we've covered healthy diet and exercise with Larry. Two other things, philosophical discussions about what? About a person's purpose and meaning in life. Purpose and meaning in life in the universe. And then living a certain way, what way is that? 
and ethical way. In other words, the Greeks believed that right thinking about purpose and meaning and right acting ethically were essential to being free of anxiety. Isn't that something? When you go off these tangents, it all sounds Greek to me. I don't know. <laughs> R, R, R. <laughs> so, Chris, your top three takeaways. Yeah, the TTTA, as you might say. Um, I think one, it's simple, but it's true. Children have serious anxiety problems uh, and an alarming percentage of them, upwards of a third or more of children and adolescents may have serious anxiety. So don't overlook it, parents. It needs. It may be serious. Uh, second, you know, be aware when a child's world seems to be getting smaller instead of larger. If they have anxiety and they're retracting into themselves and their world is shrinking, that may be a sign that things have really gotten serious. And then last, I really like this idea of um, medication as a cast uh, and that it's something that's used now to maybe bring the level of symptoms down so that the child can live and function and learn some other skills, some behavioral therapies to actually make them better and stronger in the long run. And just like a cast on a broken arm, it goes away after the arm heals. So parents, we don't have to be afraid if we think that maybe our child needs medication as a cast temporarily. And as he pointed out, if the counselor practices cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, if they are true to those therapies, really they are pretty much free of any uh, religious components. It's just ways of thinking in a healthy way. So those would be a good thing in somebody that you're looking for, uh, according to Larry Mittnall and our previous guest, Kevin Majors. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend where they can listen on EWTN or their favorite podcast app. And we'd also ask you to rate and review our show, help other listeners find us, send us questions, tell us what you like, maybe what you didn't like, what you'd like us to cover in the future. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.